Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shem Kehud Malkuto Le'olam Va'ed Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be the name of the glory of His kingdom forever and ever. Amen. Good morning, Mishpacha. Welcome to the Daily Audio Torah. I'm Laura Densmore, your host, and I'm so glad you're joining in with me today. Today is Saturday, November 19th. Shabbat Shalom. Journey with me through the entire Bible in one year, focusing on the biblical calendar, the Sabbath, the feasts, and the Torah reading cycle. We have many voices, interpretations, and points of view out there, but there is nothing like listening to the crystal clean, pure Word of God in your life. It is living water for your spirit, as it is written in Romans 10:17. So then, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. When we listen to the spoken word of God, it is living and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Hebrews 4.12 The word of God is alive, it is powerful, and it renews our mind and builds up our spirit. Now let's continue our journey through the entire Bible in one year. This week we are reading from the New Living Translation for the Hebrew Scriptures and for the Brit Hadashah. Today we finish up the Torah portion, Kayai Sarah, and it means Life of Sarah. Genesis 25, 12-18 This is the account of the family of Ishmael, the son of Abraham through Hagar, Sarah's Egyptian servant. Here is a list by their names and clans of Ishmael's descendants. The oldest was Nebaioth, followed by Kedar, Abdil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jitor, Nafish, and Kadima. These twelve sons of Ishmael became the founders of twelve tribes named after them, listed according to the places they settled and camped. Ishmael lived for 137 years. Then he breathed his last and joined his ancestors in death. Ishmael's descendants occupied the region from Havilah to Shur, which is east of Egypt, in the direction of Asher. There they lived in open hostility toward all their relatives. Ezekiel 39, 1-40-27 Son of man, prophesy against Gog. Give him this message from the Sovereign Lord. I am your enemy, O Gog, ruler of the nations of Meshach and Tubal. I will turn you around and drive you toward the mountains of Israel, bringing you from the distant north. I will knock the bow from your left hand and the arrows from your right hand, and I will leave you helpless. You and your army and your allies will all die on the mountains. I will feed you to the vultures and wild animals. You will fall 
in the open fields, for I have spoken, says the Sovereign Lord. And I will rain down fire on Magog, and on all your allies who live safely on the coasts. Then they will know that I am Yahweh. In this way I will make known my holy name among my people of Israel. I will not let anyone bring shame on it, and the nations too will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. That day of judgment will come, says the Sovereign Lord. Everything will happen just as I have declared it. Then the people in the towns of Israel will go out and pick up your small and large shields, bows, and arrows, javelins and spears, and they will use them for fuel. There will be enough to last them seven years. They won't need to cut wood from the fields or forests, for these weapons will give them all the fuel they need. They will plunder those who planned to plunder them, and they will rob those who planned to rob them, says the Sovereign Lord. And I will make a vast graveyard for Gog and his hordes in the valley of the travelers east of the Dead Sea. It will block the way of those who travel there, and they will change the name of the place to the valley of Gog's hordes. It will take seven months for the people of Israel to bury the bodies and cleanse the land. Everyone in Israel will help, for it will be a glorious victory for Israel when I demonstrate my glory on that day, says the Sovereign Lord. After seven months, teams of men will be appointed to search the land for skeletons to bury, so the land will be made clean again. Whenever bones are found, a marker will be set up so the burial crews will take them to be buried in the Valley of Gog's hordes. There will be a town there named Hamona, which means horde, and so the land will finally be cleansed. And now, son of man, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, Call all the birds and wild animals. Say to them, Gather together for my great sacrificial feast. Come from far and near to the mountains of Israel, and there eat flesh and drink blood. For the flesh of mighty men, eat the flesh of mighty men, and drink blood of princes, as though they were rams, lambs, goats, and bulls all fattened animals from Bashan. Gorge yourselves with flesh until you are glutted. Drink blood until you are drunk. This is the sacrificial feast I have prepared for you. Feast at my banquet table. Feast on horses and charioteers, on mighty men and all kinds of valiant warriors, says the Sovereign Lord. In this way, I will demonstrate my glory to the nations. Everyone will see the punishment I have inflicted on them and the power of my fist when I strike. And from that time on, the people of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God. The nations will then know why Israel was sent away to exile. It was punishment for sin, for they were unfaithful to their God. Therefore I turned away from them and let their enemies destroy them. I turned my face away and punished them because of their defilement and their sins. So now, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I will end the captivity of my people. I will have mercy on all Israel, for I jealously guard my holy reputation. They will accept responsibility for their past shame and unfaithfulness after they come home to live in peace in their own land 
with no one to bother them. When I bring them home from the lands of their enemies, I will display my holiness among them for all the nations to see. Then my people will know that I am Yahweh their Elohim, because I sent them away to exile and brought them home again. I will leave none of my people behind, and I will never again turn my face from them, for I will pour out my Spirit upon the people of Israel. I, the Sovereign Lord, have spoken. On April 28th, during the 25th year of our captivity, 14 years after the fall of Jerusalem, the Lord took hold of me. In a vision from God, He took me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain. From there I could see toward the south what appeared to be a city. As He brought me nearer, I saw a man whose face shone like bronze standing beside a gateway entrance. He was holding in his hand a linen measuring cord and a measuring rod. He said to me, Son of man, watch and listen. Pay close attention to everything I show you. You have been brought here so I can show you many things. Then you will return to the people of Israel and tell them everything you have seen. I could see a wall completely surrounding the temple area. The man took a measuring rod that was ten and a half feet long and measured the wall, and the wall was ten and a half feet thick and ten and a half feet high. Then he went over to the eastern gateway. He climbed the steps and measured the threshold of the gateway. It was ten and a half feet front to back. There were guard alcoves on each side built into the gateway passage. Each of these alcoves was ten and a half feet square with a distance between them of eight and three-quarter feet along the passage wall. The gateway's inner threshold, which led to the entry room at the inner end of the gateway passage, was ten and a half feet front to back. He also measured the entry room of the gateway. It was 14 feet across with supporting columns three and a half feet thick. This entry room was at the inner end of the gateway structure facing toward the temple. There were three guard alcoves on each side of the gateway passage. Each had the same measurements and the dividing walls separating them were also identical. The man measured the gateway entrance, which was 17 and a half feet wide at the opening and 22 and three quarters feet wide in the gateway passage. In front of each of the guard alcoves was a 21 inch curb. The alcoves themselves were 10 and a half feet on each side. Then he measured the entire width of the gateway, measuring the distance between the back walls of facing guard alcoves. This distance was 43 and three quarters feet. He measured the dividing walls all along the inside of the gateway up to the entry room of the gateway. This distance was 105 feet. The full length of the gateway passage was 87 and a half feet from one end to the other. There were recessed windows that narrowed inward through the walls of the guard alcoves and their dividing walls. There were also windows in the entry room. The surfaces of the dividing walls were decorated with carved palm trees. Then the man brought me through the gateway into the outer courtyard of the temple. A stone pavement ran along the walls of the courtyard, 
and thirty rooms were built against the walls, opening onto the pavement. This pavement flanked the gates and extended out from the walls into the courtyard the same distance as the gateway entrance. This was the lower pavement. Then the man measured across the temple's outer courtyard between the outer and inner gateways. The distance was 175 feet. The man measured the gateway on the north, just like the one on the east. Here, too, there were three guard alcoves on each side with dividing walls and an entry room. All the measurements matched those of the east gateway. The gateway passage was 87 and a half feet long and 43 and three quarters feet wide between the back walls of the facing guard alcoves. The windows, the entry room, and the palm tree decorations were identical to those in the east gateway. There were seven steps leading up to the gateway entrance, and the entry room was at the inner end of the gateway passage. Here, on the north side, just as on the east, there was another gateway leading to the temple's inner courtyard, directly opposite this outer gateway. The distance between the two gateways was 175 feet. Then the man took me around to the south gateway and measured its various parts, and they were exactly the same as in the others. It had windows along the walls, as the others did, and there was an entry room, where the gateway passage opened into the outer courtyard, and like the others, the gateway passage was eighty-seven and a half feet long and forty-three and one-quarter feet wide between the back walls of the facing guard alcoves. This gateway also had a stairway of seven steps leading up to it, and an entry room at the inner end and palm tree decorations along the dividing walls, and here again, directly opposite the outer gateway, was another gateway that led into the inner courtyard. The distance between the two gateways was 175 feet. James 2, 18-318 Now someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I, James, say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish! Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened, just as the scriptures say. Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Rahab the prostitute is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works.
Dear brothers and sisters, not many of you should become teachers in the church, for we who teach will be judged more strictly. Indeed, we all make many mistakes. For if we could control our tongues, we would be perfect, and could also control ourselves in every other way. We can make a large horse go wherever we want by means of a small bit in its mouth, and a small rudder makes a huge ship turn wherever the pilot chooses to go, even though the winds are strong. In the same way, the tongue is a small thing that makes grand speeches. But a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire, and among all the parts of the body the tongue is a flame of fire. It is a whole world of wickedness corrupting your entire body. It can set your whole life on fire, for it is set on fire by hell itself. People can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and fish, but no one can tame the tongue. It is restless and evil, full of deadly poison. Sometimes it praises our Lord and Father, and sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. And so blessing and cursing come pouring out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers and sisters, this is not right. Does a spring of water bubble out with both fresh water and bitter water? Does a fig tree produce olives or a grapevine produce figs? No, and you can't draw fresh water from a salty spring. If you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It is also peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. Psalm 118, 1-18 Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His faithful love endures forever. Let all Israel repeat, His faithful love endures forever. Let Aaron's descendants, the priests, repeat, His faithful love endures forever. Let all who fear the Lord repeat, His faithful love endures forever. In my distress I prayed to the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is for me, so I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? Yes, the Lord is for me. He will help me. I will look in triumph at those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in people. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. 
Though hostile nations surrounded me, I destroyed them all with the authority of the Lord. Yes, they surrounded and attacked me, but I destroyed them all with the authority of the Lord. They swarmed around me like bees. They blazed against me like a crackling fire. But I destroyed them all with the authority of the Lord. My enemies did their best to kill me, but the Lord rescued me. The Lord is my strength and song. He has given me victory. Songs of joy and victory are sung in the camp of the godly. The strong right arm of the Lord has done glorious things. The strong right arm of the Lord is raised in triumph. The strong right arm of the Lord has done glorious things. I will not die. Instead, I will live to tell what the Lord has done. The Lord has punished me severely, but he did not let me die. Proverbs 28.2 When there is moral rot within a nation, its government topples easily, but wise and knowledgeable leaders bring stability. I want to speak to you today from Ezekiel chapter 39 and 40, and then we will jump into the book of James. Ezekiel chapter 39 is continuing on with this description of the Gog-Magog War. And it talks about how a coalition of nations from the north gather together, and in a conspiracy they collude together to invade Israel. But yet it's God himself who sets a hook in their jaw and puts the thought in their mind, gee, I think I'll go down south and I'll take plunder from these unwalled villages. And then God himself intervenes in this battle. Israel is outgunned, outnumbered, and outpowered in every way. And God himself rains down fire and brimstone to bring an end to these invading forces. It talks about how there's this vast graveyard and many, many, many dead bodies, and they have to wait seven months before they can begin to do cleanup. That almost sounds like it could be a nuclear tactical strike where there's radiation, and they have to wait a period of time before they can go out into the field and clean up the bones. But the part I really want to zoom in on is starting in verse 25 where it says, So now, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I will end the captivity of my people. I will have mercy on all Israel, for I jealously guard my holy reputation. They will accept responsibility for their past shame and unfaithfulness after they come home to live in peace in their own land with no one to bother them. So, who's he talking about here? He's talking about all Israel, the whole house of Israel, all twelve tribes, both northern and southern kingdom. So, not just the Jews, that is the house of Judah, but the northern kingdom, the non-Jewish part of the nation of Israel. Now, many Jews have made Aliyah in the last 70 or 80 years and have returned to the land of Israel, and they live there now. But there are still many Jews living in places like New York and around the world, in Russia, 
and throughout the world who have not yet made Aliyah. And there are millions and millions and millions of people who are not Jewish, but who love the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who love Yeshua, who are part of God's family, who are grafted in by faith to the nation called Israel, who are spiritual descendants of Abraham, who are still in exile. And so, in the context of this Gog-Magog war, God says he's going to end the exile and he's going to ingather his people and bring them home to Israel. There's going to be a massive repentance. It says when they accept responsibility for their past shame and unfaithfulness after they come home to live in peace. Verse 27, When I bring them home from the lands of their enemies, I will display my holiness among them for all the nations to see. So that's an interesting phrase, Come, bring them home from the land of their enemies. Let's think about that for a moment. For more than 200 years, the United States has been a nation, one of the youngest nations that was founded, a place of liberty and freedom, a place to escape to if you live in a dictatorship or a communist nation. And many people have come and immigrated from all the nations of the world to America for freedom and been able to live a good life. But yet in the last eight, ten years, maybe the last 15 years, this nation is slipping away from being a freedom-loving and free nation. The nation is becoming more and more dictatorial and tyrannical. And elections continue to be stolen. And mandates and edicts of you must take this jab or you'll lose your job. You must wear this mask or you cannot enter this store. You must social distance for six feet. Uh, If you don't jab your child, your child cannot attend this school. This is signs of tyranny. You don't get to have freedom anymore to make your own decisions about what you will or will not put inside your body. And it's becoming more and more like a dictatorship. If you are a conservative, if you are a MAGA supporter of Trump, if you are a Christian, you become an enemy of the state. And people have been attacked wearing red MAGA hats. People have been attacked who are freedom-loving. Many, many patriots, conservatives, and Christians have been deplatformed from YouTube, Twitter, Facebook and other platforms. The censorship is extreme. So, are we now living in the land of our enemies? kind of looks that way. Verse 28 of Ezekiel 39, Then my people will know that I am the Lord their God, because I sent them away to exile and brought them home again. I will leave none of my people behind, and I will never again turn my face from them, for I will pour out my Spirit upon the people of Israel. I, the Sovereign Lord, 
have spoken. You know, there's a slogan amongst the Navy SEALs and I think amongst the Marines that when they go into enemy territory on a mission, they leave no man behind. They will go to the hindermost extreme measures to make sure they do not leave not one man behind. And this is exactly what God is saying here. He will not leave not one person behind. He will bring all of his people home. So whether a person has cancer or they're lame or they have illness or they're elderly or aged, he says not one will be left behind. So he will do it. However he accomplishes it, he will do it. And so what we see overall in this chapter, these two chapters, is there's going to be this Gog-Magog war. A coalition of nations will attack Israel. God will intervene and deal with these enemies. And deal. And there will be a massive earthquake that was described in chapter 38. There will be fire and brimstone, again, that was described in chapter 38. And then, as in the closing verses of chapter 39, God is showing that in the context of this war, that's when the greater exodus begins. That's when he's going to begin to ingather his people, and they will return home to Israel. So no no matter where you are, Australia, New Zealand, Europe, South America, North America, Asia, the islands, No matter where you are, he says, I'm going to bring you home. That's an amazing promise. It will be happening in the context of war. It'll be a little bit dark and scary, but we just need to keep our eyes on Yeshua and trust him because he does. He keeps his word. Now let's look into James. James is a very practical book. And it's all about living out the message, living out the word of God in your life, in your lifestyle, and in your behavior. He talks about how faith without works is dead. Just in the same way that we saw the field of bones and the bones all came together and they all got fleshed out with skin and muscles, but there was no breath to them. They didn't really come alive until the breath came. James says the same thing is true of faith. If there's no good deeds to go with the faith, it's like a dead man walking with no breath. That faith and works work together. Good deeds. So it's practical. Very practical. That if we have faith in Yeshua, we're going to do good deeds because he lives in us. Then he goes on to talk about the tongue. And he talks about how the tongue is a small member of the body, but it can set the course of a person's life on fire. A tiny spark can set a great forest on fire, and among all the parts of the body, the tongue is a flame of fire. It is a whole world of wickedness corrupting your entire body, and it can set your whole life on fire. For it is set on fire by hell itself. So he's talking about how difficult it is to tame the tongue. Many horrible word curses get spoken through the tongue. And he's saying that this all comes right from the pit of hell. It's restless and evil and full of deadly 
poison. And he says, does a spring of water bubble up with both fresh and bitter water? Does a fig tree produce olives or a grapevine produce figs? So whenever I read these words, I'm greatly convicted. It's easy to have control over your tongue if you're alone and by yourself. Where the test comes is when you're in relationships. When you live with family members or you go to work and you're with co-workers or a boss. When you go to your fellowship or your church community and you're around other people and then things happen and things are said and all of a sudden you're reacting the Bible tells us, do not repay evil for evil or insult for insult. But in the heat of the moment, that's very difficult not to do. If someone insults you or speaks an evil word to you, our flesh wants to strike back. And so all we can do is really repent and ask the Father to put a bit and a bridle in our mouth. And whenever we are tempted to speak an evil word, to ask the Holy Spirit to pull on the reins, to give us that fruit of the Spirit, which one of them is self-control, and to step away and step back, to put ourselves in time out when we are tempted. Because once the words are let loose, you can't take them back. They're out there in the atmosphere. They've been spoken, they've been said, and the damage has been done. So this is probably one of the greatest sins that we human beings all struggle with, is the sin with the mouth. We harm and we hurt and we damage each other with our words. And so we want our words to be words of kindness, of affirmation, of encouragement, and of love. And we want our actions and our deeds to be good, to be compassionate and merciful and kind. So may we work on that, all of us. I like the closing verses from James, and it bears repeating. Verse 17, chapter 3 of James. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It also is peace-loving and gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. In other words, it's not stubborn. It doesn't insist on its own way. It says, you can have your way. That's fine. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. It is not easy to be a peacemaker. Whether it's between two people or between two nations, where there has been hostility, misunderstanding, uh, years or decades of hostility, a wall has been there a long, long time. It takes a lot of humility, persistence, gentleness, and consistent love to take the wall down. Walls get built when there's offenses, when there's 
records of wrong. What helps to dismantle walls is forgiveness and unconditional love. We will continue in James tomorrow. Have a blessed day. Shalom and Yeshua the Messiah. Adonai Adonai The Aaronic Blessing from Numbers chapter 6, 24 to 26. Adonai bless you and keep you. Adonai make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Adonai lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.